Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 159 of Yogaland. On this penultimate episode, the second to last episode of the season, I got to do a live episode with Jason at Love Story Yoga. He's on module three of the 500-hour training, and we got to take questions from the trainees, and most of them centered around creating high-quality, sustainable content, marketing, and then creating a sustainable curriculum for yourself. So that's it from me for this one. Enjoy the episode. Well, here we are. Hi, Jason. Hi, Andrea. How's it going? Pretty well. We are here at Love Story Yoga in San Francisco in front of our live audience of teacher trainees. Perfectly. This is the quietest they've been in seven days. (laughs) And they're going to be in rapt attention the whole time, I'm sure. Yeah. So we asked this group that I'm working with right now to give us questions for the podcast. And there are a bunch of really great questions that came up, but a lot of the questions that came up had to do with content development for yoga teachers or content development as yoga teachers. And then honestly, making a living in some of the complexity of developing a business and doing some marketing and so forth. Those are the kinds of questions that often come up in trainings, especially advanced trainings. For me as a yoga teacher, I want to help people develop themselves as teachers, but I also want them to be more skillful with their livelihood and their professional decisions. So I'm glad these came in and and we can take them. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I'll start. So how do you approach putting out authentic quality content in a sustainable way? And that was really with regards to the podcast. So I'm going to let you maybe start with that because I know it's difficult to have sustainable quality content week after week, month after month. So I know my thoughts around the subject of how I help develop content for the podcast, but how do you think about it? I know you spend a lot of time in the editorial world, so you apply some of those existing skills, but how do you come about having a good show week to week? That's such a good question. I actually love this question. I'm going to split it into two parts. So first, how do you put out authentic quality content? And then second, in a sustainable way. So in terms of authentic quality, I'm just such a purist. I mean, I got into this profession of journalism, if we can still call podcasting a a loose form of journalism. I, I got into it because I am just a really inquisitive person and I'm curious about a lot of different things and it satisfies that part of my personality. And so I think I was fortunate enough like early on in my career to find out that yoga was something I was sort of endlessly interested in and like all its permutations and the different ways that it applies to your emotional life and your physical life and your spiritual life and the way that you parent and all these different things like that that breadth of yoga has always really interested me. So in terms of quality, I mean, I always just follow what I'm interested in and passionate about at the moment. And I always just try to, it's this combination of trying to kind of stay on top of what's out there and what books people are writing and what articles are in the LA Times and, you know, that kind of thing, just kind of staying on top of the research. And then also just when it feels like I'm forcing it too much, just taking a step back and honestly, like practicing more and allowing my practice to bring up what I really care about in the moment so that I can follow that and perhaps find 
a guest that scratches that itch. I'm going to say something about that too, just kind of not how I help you create content, but one of the things I watch about you when you create content, which is, I don't feel like you try to make this the CNN of yoga. I don't feel like you feel an immense sense of responsibility for covering like the hot topics of the day. No, I feel like, cause I don't have the staff to even do that. If I were that person, I would be a person who had, you know, a staff of research assistants and I would set it up in such a way that it could be really newsy, but having worked at a magazine, I know that I'm not a daily, like I can't keep up with that. So I can't even pretend that I can keep up with that. But I don't think you're interested in it either. No, I'm, right? I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. I, this is like your page. I think that everything that you do, all of the episodes you do, you are inherently interested in having that discussion. Oh yeah, for, for sure. sure. I absolutely always follow like what's really true to me. And, you know, my goal when I started the podcast was twofold. First, it was just to expose more people to the conversations I got to have with really high level yoga teachers, because I always thought I just love talking to them. And like the person who comes to mind for me actually is Mati, you know, she, she and Sally Kempton were like the two people who I felt like, oh, I wish other people got to talk to them the way I get to talk to them. They're just such wonderful, you know, insightful people. So that was one thing is I just wanted to expose people to those people that I had access to. And then the second thing is that I wanted to, I wanted for the world really, and I don't know if this reach has really gotten there, but I wanted for people outside of yoga who were perhaps tangentially interested in it to see all of the things we are all doing in the world to see that yoga is in prisons, to see that yoga, you know, is in schools, to see that like we are pushing the needle, like we're actually making an impact on the way that we all live our lives. And so that can start with like a really small topic like anger. How do you deal with anger in yoga or, you know, and, but it can also go out to like a bigger organizational topic. So yeah, that's kind of for me just being authentic is, and, and I think perhaps having worked at like a bigger outlet where it wasn't, I didn't always get to follow my passion and my interests just because of the nature of being part of a bigger brand. It's so much fun. Like I can't not do that now. I can't like fake anything now. It just wouldn't be, wouldn't be worth it. In terms of making it sustainable, that's a really good question. I mean, I definitely believe in the Malcolm Gladwell rule, which I always forget the number of hours, but he says something like... Like seven. 10,000. Seven. <laughs> something like 10,000 hours or 15,000 like hours until ten. you reach mastery of, it, of how to do something. So I definitely feel like 10 years of creating content, grinding out content month after month for a magazine helped me grind out content and like never miss a podcast. Maybe missed one once or something like that. So... In terms of making it sustainable, it's really was just a learned trait of just figuring out, is this topic too big for me right now? Like, for example, I haven't revisited the Me Too topic in the yoga world. I really care about it, but I haven't had the time to like dive deeply into it enough to figure out exactly who to have on and when and how to organize that and how many episodes. Like, And so I know that. So I just have not done that yet. And I'm honest with myself about that. I can't be everything to everyone. And I have a sense of what I can handle in terms of a topic. And I also have a good sense of 
who can speak to that topic. And I can tell pretty quickly when I talk to people if I feel like they can deliver a good interview. So I don't know if that's a great answer for people. But it, I think it is. But also like sustainability implies that it's ongoing, right? So it's an ongoing process and it's a lot of give and take and watching you, you know, sometimes you have smoother weeks and months developing the content and yeah. delivering it. And other times it's much harder. You're much more stressed and you have to work a little bit harder to figure out who and when and why and where. Yep. And you, like we all do, also go through fatigue patterns. And you go through not necessarily resistance patterns, but like, is this really what I'm to be doing patterns, <laughs> you know? So the sustainability doesn't imply a lack of difficulty from time to time. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's really challenging to keep something going like this for this long on my own. Like I still kind of go like, oh, my gosh, am I going to keep doing this like this forever? Yes. But yes, I mean, for now, it's nice that he wants me to keep doing it. And it's nice that people tell me that they appreciate it because that honestly does keep me going because I just work in such a vacuum most of the time. But yeah, I am always kind of tweaking and trying to figure out how to continue to make it sustainable. One of the things I'm sure yoga teachers can relate to this is I sometimes have to step back and say to myself, am I overworking? Like, does, do people really need to hear, you know, a whole hour long conversation about this topic? Or could I just ask five questions and make it a 30 minute interview and like press the easy button and make it a little bit easier on myself? So every once in a while, I have to kind of like scale back when I'm feeling really fatigued or when I'm feeling just like, I, you know, I have to do four interviews this week because then Sophia's off for two weeks and then we're traveling for two, you know, that's when I step back and say, like, how can I make this cleaner and simpler and just remember that this is supposed to be fun for people to listen to and informative and just to trust that, that that will come out in the, in the course of the conversation. I think the other thing you've done, you've started to do to make it a little bit more sustainable too, is give yourself some small periodic breaks by doing more of a season structure. Yep. I think, you know, like I'm very Midwestern in that if I'm not overworking, I feel like I'm not working in that, right? And so that's something that I always have to work with, right? But I feel like you and I would rather produce less content and make sure that content is actually good. Yeah. Uh, good to us. I mean, you know, we, yeah. we um, then more content and make it bad. And I won't go down this road too far, but for me, where that comes out often is social media. I'm actually at this point in my life, really happy to post one to three times. If I only have one to three times of things you mean per week, per week. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. If I, if that's all I have to say, because it, when I find when I'm doing something that is just like totally obligatory to add to the white noise and hope that people still like me and find me relevant, then I feel like I'm not doing it the way that I can do it best. So I would rather have less content and more quality content. And I feel like going to the season scenario, even though that only gives you what, like three or four weeks off at a time, mm -hmm. it's still a really good way for you to be able to deliver good stuff instead of feeling like, oh my God, I just have to fill this vacuum to meet this particular need. Yeah. Yeah. We always used to call it an editorial making the sausages. You're just yeah. making the sausages yeah. grinding away. I will say, I think that something that you bringing up in terms of like 
wanting to post more quality over quantity. There's different times for different things, right? So as you gain more of a following, like either for the podcast or for you on Instagram, people pay more attention to what you're doing. And so they expect really high quality, which is reasonable. And so for me, when I started the podcast, like I didn't ramp up slowly. I ramped up quickly because I wanted to create a listenership. And it's now three years. And after three years, it does take me longer to find the right guests. It does take me longer to research topics. And so I feel like I can slow down a little bit. And I like, same for you, you can slow down because you've kind of already got people who are paying attention. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So I want to add just really quick, those super thorough and awesome. And I am the person that creates the most amount of content with you. And you spoke a moment ago about being in a vacuum. The way that I create content is I don't live in a vacuum, right? Is that I spend a ton of time, especially with teachers and experience level students, trying to help them solve some of the challenges that exist in their body, in their practice, in their business, in their teaching. So I see around the world the kind of things that yoga teachers and yoga practitioners are struggling with or the things that there's still some lack of consistency on or there's some confusion on or kind of the almost the hot topics of person X says do Y, person Z says do whatever. Right. You know? And so I'm in the field I'm in the field all the time, and I've been in the field for a long time. I often know what teachers and students are talking about and confused about and trying to sort. And I also know for me, all of the challenges and the questions and the complexities that I have dealt with and continue to deal with. And so it's pretty easy for me if you say, I want you to do five or six episodes in next season. What do you want to talk about? I can very easily say, what happens with the shoulders when the arms go overhead? How to make a living? Blah, 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 right? I spend so much time with those questions yeah. that it's easy for us to then have a conversation about it. Yeah, you you always have topics right at your fingertips yeah. that you've been working with with people, yeah. which is great. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm starting to get emails asking about your 2020 teacher training dates. You have them, yes? Yes. And they're up on the website. Okay, so a couple of things to announce. 300-hour program in San Francisco. We do it every year. It starts in February. So module one, February 2020. All the information is on lovestoryyoga.com. And then there's two modules that are going to be happening in London as well. So modules two and three in London are happening early next year. Right. Yeah? Yes. But something also kind of exciting to announce. I am doing another 200-hour foundational teacher training in London, August 2020. Registration is not up yet. Registration is probably going to start in a month. It's going to start right around August 1st. Okay. It's an intensive format. It's going to be August 3rd through 28th. And in addition to myself, I'm teaching about 80% of the content. And then in addition to me, Adam Hustler and Adam Hoke are also going to be joining me. And I am so super excited and proud of those two. They are such really exceptional people and exceptional teachers and really leading teachers in their own right. And I'm excited about that because that's 
summer, which means yeah, we're gonna be there for a month. That the the family is just Euro tour. Here we come. Yeah. So look out for that, everyone that is going to fill up. So if you want to train with me next year, start thinking about those dates and And go uh, to jasonyoga.com slash schedule to find out more. Yeah. Next question. How do you make a living off of yoga and still make it available and accessible for people? So I think what I'll do is like you did is try to define that as two separate questions. The first question, how do you make a living teaching yoga? Well, that's a massive question. I have a lot of answers to it, but I'm going to use myself as an example because I'm terribly self-absorbed. I think now there are many more opportunities to teach yoga than there were when I began teaching yoga. But I don't necessarily think it's easier to be a yoga teacher now than it was 20 years ago. Right. There's many more opportunities now but the expectations are very different now because that's, that's right really true. because because we see it the bar it like, was so low the bar when you was started. so low no it was like here's the thing is like because social media didn't exist like the one person that made you feel bad was you taught the 430 class and you were leaving the 430 class with nine people and then the six o'clock class was coming in and there were 24 people. Yeah. You know, so you kind of had that like relative disparity, but you would only see it in small studio situations. You just wouldn't see it in a larger scale. And now with social media, this becomes the expectation set that most of us internalize to be good and popular and loved and self-sustaining the timeline that it produces in our mind is distorted and not in accordance with reality, right? I think the other thing where it's not necessarily easier, even though there's more opportunity now, is the real wages haven't increased, right? So this is actually kind of shocking, but when I start to talk to people around and I find out what people are being paid for public classes, I will tell you it's less than what I was paid for a public class in 1998, wow. 1997, 1996, because there's so many more teachers, right? And so yoga, a lot of times, especially at the gyms, like in 1997, I got paid $75 a class at Gold's Gym. Okay. It's really good. It's really good. Okay. I know. We have uh, people are losing their mind, right? Wow. Okay. Because you know what I had? You know what I was in 1997 teaching at Gold's Gym? A specialist, right? So they, there weren't that many teachers, mm. even in the San Francisco market, there weren't that many teachers. But so what happens is now there's so many teachers that the real wages are depressed. Mm. So you have teachers that have an expectation to make more and be more popular in a quicker, more accelerated timeline. And you also have real wages that have not only not gone up, but they've mostly gone down. Mm. So I'm really honest about this, which is just to say, look, it's really difficult to make a living. So my best advice is, the bottom line is you have to diversify your revenue sources. And I don't necessarily mean having a second job, although I had a second job for a very long period of time. But you want to think about the different ways that you can generate revenue as a yoga teacher. And I think that too many teachers think mostly about public classes and only public classes. 
and they try to get more public classes and have more public classes at better times and then maybe advocate for like $2 a class more. But that doesn't really scale that well. So one of the things that I try to help everyone in these programs just start to think about it, and it's admittedly very difficult, is you want to figure out the different environments that you can teach and earn a living on and have a little bit of all of those pieces. So you start with public classes, but you also kind of want to have some privates. Sooner rather than later, you want to teach a series or two per year. You want to teach a couple of workshops per year and maybe start to do a retreat. What this does is then this diversifies your skill set as a yoga teacher. Like how you teach is a little bit different depending on the format in which you teach, right? And then the other thing is there usually is not one payday that is so significant that you don't need many other paydays. So you want to be earning on more than just public classes if that is possible. The other thing to always consider is different people are in different phases of their life and require different revenues in order to make their living. When I was in my early 20s teaching yoga or even late 20s teaching yoga, my financial demands were lower than they are now. <laughs> yeah. We had a little conversation about this last night. Anyways, we have this conversation with some regularity, but... The point on this is, I don't want to presume. He was a very simple man. I'll put it that way. <laughs> when I met him, very simple man. Um, I don't. Two pairs of jeans. Did I have jeans then? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I had two. I think maybe. Probably I, I might be pushing it. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, <laughs> dark blue and black. Okay. Anyways, but I don't want to presume that everyone needs the same revenue. Right. Right. I mean, because there's a lot of people that depending on their family situation. Or like where you live. Where you live. Yeah. You know, so if you are a primary earner in your family and you want to do that for, a, you know, a sustained period of time, you are not going to make enough on one format. Can I interrupt you really Please. quick? What do you think about for privates? Do you feel like let's say for these students, you know, these students are pretty experienced. I mean, these teachers, sorry. And they're going to be having a 500 hour certificate after this is over. Do you feel like to get privates, you should sort of have a niche? No. No. Okay. Oh, let's do a conversation sometime just about privates. Okay. Because I have a lot of thought and I did so many privates for so long. Yeah, you did. Yeah. And I learned a lot from that process. And you liked them a lot too. Yeah. It was, yeah. Yeah. And it was really of- steady because what I earn at pretty much in everything that I do is based on commission. It's not based on flat rates. So that's not always the case for everyone. But so one of the things that I liked about privates is private was the only flat rate thing I did. Right. So I didn't get into like the mental anguish Uh of commission earning of like, oh, there's 20 people or 40 people or two people or 70 people. You know, it was like, I didn't get into that mind mess of, it's kind of calculating right. revenue based on time. It was like I had a relationship with a teacher-student relationship with this student, and I was trying to help them with A, B, C, D, and E, and I got paid X. Yeah. So the bottom line is teachers sooner rather than later have to think about 
all of the different environments in which they teach and try to diversify those environments so, so that they're getting paid in different scenarios. Got it. Because no one scenario is enough. Okay. Yeah. And what about the accessible for people part of the Oh, question? and then accessible for people. This is a complicated conversation, right? Because really what we're talking about is making sure that people with different finances still have access to practicing yoga. Uh, where it's complicated and not complicated is if you are a teacher and you're teaching at a studio, you can't actually afford to make things really inexpensive. I know people really always want things to be super inexpensive, but electricity is expensive and hard costs are expensive. And the labor or the capital that went into the build out is expensive. Like paying teachers, when you have a lot of teachers to pay, I think most teachers think that the owners are making a lot more than they actually are. Now, there are owners and investment groups that sometimes do make a lot, but that's kind of few and far between. I've worked with a lot of studios. I see their overhead. I have managed multiple studios, but when I managed the San Francisco Bay Club, I would actually get to see the real costs that went into studio ownership the insurances, the taxes, like, man, it is really complicated. The other thing that complicates it is we have the world of, I almost said fast pass. We have like class pass and Groupon, and we have like all the discounting that there might be a lot of people in class, but what those people are paying Hmm. might not actually be that much. So the net operating income or the profit margins of most studios is not awesome. So it's difficult to make things more accessible by charging less without the studio going into failure, Mm -hmm. okay? So I think that what we can do is, as well as we can, do things like we do on Yogaland, which is no one pays to listen to this, okay? So we provide a ton of free content Mm -hmm. on our blog, on our social media pages, a ton of free content. What we don't do because I have an existing relationship with Yoga Glows, we don't have free videos. But there's a ton of free videos on YouTube. A lot of them are really bad, but a lot of them are really good. So actually helping people find if people have and um, even yoga glow is much more accessible exactly let's say going to a studio every day totally so helping to steer people into some of the digital realms and then i'll just i'll just say say it which is i comp a lot of students there's just a lot of individual students who i comp like i was teaching class the other night elsewhere and i looked at the comp sheet and there were 12 people in that class that i had comped because tell the Michael Cooper story. I will. Yeah. Because there are people that are genuine students that are going through a phase that they can't afford it. So I'm going to comp that. I don't comp workshops or trainings because I can't afford to do that. Mm-hmm. But I can afford to comp public classes to people that I know and that are in a particular situation. I'll say, because I feel like I've told this story at some point. You have told the story on the podcast, but I'm sure people, not everybody's heard it. One of my first teachers who who has since passed away, Michael Cooper, who's really, really influential in San Francisco in the mid 90s, early 2000s, just an awesome guy. He said after the first class I took with him, 
he said, I'm going to make you a deal. If you come to every one of my classes I teach here, it's free. If you don't come to all of them, you have to pay for the ones you come to. And I said, okay. So I just studied with him for a long period of time. Yeah. Yeah. He I was passed the best. that on. Moving on, how do you market yourself in a subtle way? How do you decide how much content to give away as a way to advertise your business offerings? I'm do glad people start? think we market ourselves in a subtle way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. So I think one of the places this will come up most, most obviously is, I think, two places, right? Which is on our blog, there's a lot of post breakdowns, sequences, yep. all sorts of what I think is good free content. Mm-hmm. And usually there's a link embedded within that blog yep. that, hey, something. yeah, like if you're interested yeah. in this and you want to learn more about technique or sequencing or anatomy, join me here or there. So to me, I'm doing two things. Like I am dealing with two things simultaneously. I am dealing with the fact that I want to provide greater education and insight to people who are interested, and I want to continue to make a livelihood with people that are interested. So I don't do a ton of straightforward paid advertising or advertising posts, but I create a lot of free content, including these conversations, that interested parties who realize like, oh, like, I like this. This is how I think. This is how I learn. This is really good stuff. I want to learn more. Absolutely. I want that interested student base to then buy something from us or buy something from me. That's how we make a living. I would say another reason that we do this is this is what you and I are good at. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like we are good at making content. We like it. We enjoy it. Yeah, we're good at it. And like there are kind of different formulas to getting your word out in the modern era. And one of the formulas, in no way to disparage it or to say you and I aren't the greatest looking people on the planet because we are, without a doubt. But like oftentimes, I'm joking, but like oftentimes it's like the beautiful person in the beautiful place doing the beautiful thing. That is often a route that gets attention. And then there's also that kind of like big, effusive social media personality that gets a lot of attention. And then there's kind of our route, which is a little bit more, it's different content, but it's more like, uh, it's more teachy. Okay. You know what I mean? It's like more teachy, more application. It's not me showing an awesome pose. It's me actually kind of breaking down an awesome pose and teaching it. I thought you were talking about the other, anyway. One of the reasons we do what we do is because these are our skill sets. Yeah. I'm going to jump in. Yeah. First of all, does everyone remember 
the character on Saturday Night Live. I'm not camera friendly. No. <laughs> the guy who's like, I live in a van down. Oh, is it the same one? Yeah. Chris Farley. Yeah. yeah. Not camera friendly. I like to scare children. <laughs> okay. Anyway, <laughs> here's what I want to say about creating content and how much to create that's free and not free. Yeah. If you want to create content, do it. Yes. Don't. Right now, the way that publishing is, there's no guarantee you're going to get paid anymore for content. There just isn't. So if you want to do it and you have a passion for doing it and you're excited about doing it, do it. And know that even for us, creating new content and different forms of media is an experiment. This podcast was an experiment. We had no idea, really, if, like, I remember, you know, Nate coming over after a week and me saying to him, had 84 listens this week. It was really exciting. You know, it was like, we had no idea. And so had it not gone well, we would have just pivoted and tried something else. So I am just a big believer in encouraging people to do what they want to do. When I was about to start this podcast, I spoke to someone who was a podcaster who I really admired, um, another woman. And she was like, just do it. If you want to do it, just do it and don't think about it. And just sit down in your bedroom and record an episode. And you know what? You can do it. And so that's what I want to say to everyone else. If you want to have a YouTube channel, like have a YouTube channel. And if you start off on your YouTube channel and you think, I'm going to do classes for kids. And then you do five classes for kids. And you're like, oh, I'm just not feeling this. Do something else. It's okay. That's what's kind of the beauty of, of the time that we're living in is there's just so many different options so you can find what works for you. It's also part of the difficulty of the era that we're living in. True. Is that there's so many options, That's right? That's true. That's true. And so you kind of also, you have to experiment with the thing for a long enough period of time to know, I mean, like, if you don't like the thing, it's fine. But it, it also can take people a long time to find their people and to find their market and their resonance and their voice. So I would just, I would lay that into is that it might take more than five or six it's going to be a period of time. The other thing I'll layer into this, which is to say that, you know, if I really wanted to open a store, like I think about this like boutique store that's up on uh, the uh, near where we live, right? We're not going to say the name of it because I'm no, no, no. I'm talking about one, about one that I don't make fun of every okay. day of my life. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's one I make fun of every day of my life. And then there's an, another one that I do not make fun of that I really like. But like, but the point is like, if you wanted to open a store, that's pretty capital intensive. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Like you got to have the square footage. You got to have the rent. You got to have the build out. You got to have the inventory. You got to have like the point of sale system. Like, man, you got to have the DBA. You got to have the lawyers. I just you, had to have a microphone. You had, I right? had the computer already. <laughs> so I'm not saying that this is easy. And I'm not saying that creating yoga content is easy at all. And we do invest our resources into yeah. it. But at the same time, I think it's like there's a lower barrier to entry to try. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? There's like a lower barrier entry to try to do this kind of stuff. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. How do we get beyond the everyday grind to the bigger picture content slash curriculum? People are talking about specifically within teaching now, right? A hundred percent. Okay. Okay. Uh, but you can also think about it a little bit in terms of editorial calendar. But for me, one of the reasons this question came up is because we're in the third module of this 300-hour training. 
And it's very important to me as a teacher, and it's very important to me working with teachers, that we stop thinking about just teaching in class-to-class increments. We have to be thinking in larger, longer chunks, or else we drive ourselves totally insane, right? I feel like in the world of yoga, it's like when we teach, it's like reading a book out of order. So one of the things that I try to give everyone is a curriculum-based approach where at very least we can start to think about a month of content. And, and it doesn't have to be the exact same sequence, but can we have some consistency and novelty? Can we have a little bit more consistent focus on certain objectives? That's like ridiculously simple. And I give a format to work in for this. But one of the challenges is as yoga teachers, we are often working from behind. We're often running from class to class to class to class. How do we take the time or how do we develop a situation where we're not just rushing from class and teaching this class and rushing to a next class and teaching another class, but how do we come back? How do we hit pause, step back and create a curriculum? Yeah. Even if it's for a month, right? And I think what I want to communicate on this is I remember when I was in an earlier phase of teaching yoga and I was teaching about 15 classes a week and somewhere between 10 and 19 privates a week, depending on the week. One of the things that made me so insane was I had these like two hour increments between classes all the time that was totally ineffective yeah. and useless. Still, even when I was doing 15 hours of teaching and 19 hours of privates, that's still not 40 hours a week, okay? So, but the problem with that is I had really ineffective use of my time. Mm -hmm. So I think the way to start to do this is to figure out those in-between times, that 90 minutes here or that two hours here, and be really disciplined about saying, I'm going to take these three hours here and these two hours here over the course of two days, and I'm going to step back and I'm going to write down what are my teaching objectives, what are the key postures I want to work on, what are the key techniques I care about right now, what region of the body do I want to work on, what mental, emotional, philosophical, or spiritual things am I thinking about, And then just use that time to create a little bit more of a brainstorming. And then if you're in this training, there's ways to actually do it within a template that I use. Or if you're not, just taking that time to brainstorm and and just kind of getting it out, having that discipline to make it happen in those between times. That's really good advice. I think just to kind of piggyback onto that, it's almost like when I'm planning the podcast I spend a lot more time thinking about it than I do actually doing the interviews and producing the interviews. I spend a lot more time planning it and, you know, moving through all the different possibilities of the puzzle pieces than I do sitting down and doing the interviews. So it's like, it's sort of shifting your mindset from, oh, my job is to walk in the room to teach yoga to my job is to take the space that I have in my life to plan what I want to be offering to people. And then I can go in and offer it in a consistent way. So it's sort of carving out that time. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Okay, how do you pitch content to studios who don't know you? You say, hi, my name is... Well, but do you do it online or do you make sure that you've been to the studio before and you can meet the person in person or talk to someone at the front desk or... I think it depends. So ideally what happens is this. Like this would be kind of like the ideal kind of scatter pattern of someone that was going to develop more of a workshop schedule. There's two things in developing a workshop schedule that we just need to be really, really clear about. There's the getting the gig, and then there's the getting people to go to the gig. And those are different things. It's easier to get the gig and to get people to go to the gig if you are, if you are not well-known by working locally first. So ideally... You have done a couple of workshops, a series or two, at a home studio. And those have gone well enough that you are starting to diversify and go somewhere else. So the next place that you want to go, where you kind of want to go and they don't already know you, is you want to go nearby. Hmm. So I'll give San Francisco as an example, right? Um, So your studio wouldn't be upset if you did that? So, well, that's why I'm going to give San Francisco, okay? I think you want a little distance. So we live in San Francisco. Even though it's not that far, Oakland, Berkeley, Marin, Redwood Shores, like those places are within 12 to 30 miles. Right, but those people aren't going to necessarily come all the way Exactly, but those are very different practice markets because most people practice pretty close to where they live and or work. It's so easy. Yeah, of course. Because most people that practice are are like very recreational practitioners, right? I used to always think about this of like, there was a Thai restaurant that I loved that was on the other side of town. And there was a Thai restaurant that was fine, that was two doors down. So which one of those did I go to? The one on the Mostly the one the that one was on really Street, close. Right? Yes. I couldn't believe you went to that one. <laughs> Every time you went, I was like, really? It was oh. good. It was good. But but it, it was like going to the other place was more of a special occasion. So for me, I have a lot of students that will come to my class as a special occasion, but they mostly practice with the teachers that are closer to them that they also really love, Right. So the point I'm trying to get at is if you are not a super well-known yoga teacher and you're, you're starting to have the entrepreneurial sense of, I really like teaching workshops and I want to diversify my workshop. First, you have to do that with people that actually know who you are locally. But then you want to start to think about what's, I don't know, 15 to 30 miles from here. You know, some place that like really is ultimately a different studio population. The studio you work for might have some issue with it if the studio you work for is like, if they don't see the big picture. But for the most part, a studio is not going to have a problem with that. They just realize that there's just no way for them to control that. So then you go to that place that's a little further away. And ideally, it's an introduction. Ideally, you've emailed, you've called, you send them content. Say like, look, I've been teaching this at San Francisco Yoga Shala. I don't think that's a real place. I'm hoping it's anymore. not a place. Yeah, no, it used to be, but not anymore. It was just Yoga Shala. But I've been teaching this at San Francisco Yoga Shala. 
and it's gone really well. You know, it's been doing well. The content is really good. I'm enjoying it. People have been coming to this. I think that we could do this in at your studio. What do you think? Okay. So that's ideally the pattern. And then what can happen in that situation is you, depending on where you live, like we live in a pretty cosmopolitan place. There's a lot of, there's many markets nearby that usually don't travel much. So then you ha- you can find a lot, a lot of other locations within that vicinity. The other option, which is kind of the, hey, I'm going to be there anyways, right? Which is a lot of times what will happen is teachers that are a little bit more entrepreneurial and they travel in their life, mm-hmm. they're going on a vacation to Fort Lauderdale. And so they reach out to studios in Fort Lauderdale, whatever it is. Got it. And they're like, hey, we're going to be here for a period of time. I'd love to teach a workshop. That kind of thing, uh, studios are often receptive to that. That's a great idea. Yeah. yeah. Off there, often I used not- to do that with magazine stories too. I used to like, if I was going to a spa or something, I would say like, I'm, I'm going to pitch this to so-and-so and then I'd get like a free treatment. Yeah. yeah. Um, we'll also say this real quick, which is, right, you've alluded to it, but you worked for Yoga Journal for a long time and you got pitched all the time by models and you got pitched by authors mm-hmm. all the time. And- did some of those people get the gig? Some did and some didn't. That's right. And that's going to be the exact same thing. Yeah. But there was only one yoga journal. Right. But in Walnut Creek or wherever it is, there's like 78 yoga studios. So this is a place where going back to the beginning of the conversation is saying like the upside of being a teacher in the modern era is there is a lot of square footage in this world to teach yoga in. And if one studio is not interested in your content, there might be another studio that is. And I think one of the things that we all fear is failure and rejection and putting ourselves out there. And I get it, but that's going to be part of what I would say that's going to be part of what's necessary in this current environment of teaching. Mm-hmm. You know, I just had something come to mind, which is that, you know, there's also creative ways you could pitch yourself that. Like a um, song and dance, like if you did a tap dance. Yeah, basically. <laughs> no, I mean, think about trying to get a promotion at, in a typical workplace. You know, if you read advice, it'll always, it'll always be like, tell them what you're bringing to the company. So I was just thinking at Love Story, Steph's started a lot of evening events mm-hmm. and weekend events. And I think that's really cool. It's a great way to build community. And they're very creative events. So one of them was actually um, Melissa, who did the Yoga Sutras art. Like she had, a Steph had a gallery of her art here one night and, and then a panel and a talk. And there's nights of other panels and chanting. And so if you have something that you think would really be beneficial to the studio in terms of getting people in the door, that's perhaps at a different time or a different a different format. That's something to think about too. Yeah. There's kind of a final phrase I want to think, cause I want to say, which is everyone is afraid of putting themselves out there. So you can't wait till you're not afraid of putting yourself out there, but you have to trust that you can get through that fear if things don't go your way. Yeah. Okay. How do you bridge the gap between doing everything yourself and knowing what to farm out to others? 
I don't think you can answer this question. <laughs> I told I, 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 the person who asked it, I said, you don't marry a man from the Midwest. <laughs> or you marry someone who helps you stay balanced. Or something like that. Yes, by setting boundaries. Do you want to try to answer that question? No. I, okay, I will answer that question because it's hard for me too. But I will say, know your own strengths and know your weak spots. And if there is something that you hate to do in your business, that's likely something you're probably not naturally that good at, right? So think about those things and shore up those areas where you need help. And it's a hard thing because it takes a while to feel like it's a financially viable thing to get help. But if you can say to yourself, paying for X, Y, or Z. Like one thing that I have paid for for the podcast from the very beginning is the sound editing. Could I have learned to do the sound editing myself? Yes, it's very simple. But taking that off of my plate allows me to spend more time researching for the podcast, you know, coming up with better interview questions, et cetera, et cetera. So so you have to think of it in terms of, okay, I'm not really good at this piece and I can find someone who is good at it and who enjoys doing it. And then I can take my talents and apply them where they need to be applied. This is interesting, right? Because this question is like immediately puts me into my karma or like good, ref- like gives me reflection. Like I grew up in the Midwest with a family who ran a family owned business that did fine, but where my mom and dad run, ran everything from soup to nuts, right? And the only people really, they, not the only people they gave jobs to, but the people who were employed were, were family members. Derelict friends. My brother's derelict friends and family members. This is a pretty derelict operation. <laughs> I mean, that place was, uh, anyways, yes. Anyways. Why don't you say what it was? Oh, it was an, an award. Trophy awards. and ribbons. Like trophies, ribbons, really plaques. Cool, actually. I was yeah. really cute. And it had, you know, like it grandma did well made, for. Grandma made the rosettes for the country fair. Yeah, like, yeah, grandma did cute. a. Ants yeah. and all of my skate punk derelict friends <laughs> that does, could not have been employed anywhere else. But the thing is, I'm not even good at figuring out what I'm not. I'm good at figuring out what I'm not good at, but I'm not. I'm like, it's so existentially difficult for me to not try to control everything and minimize costs on everything all the time, that even that one thing is difficult. So we're going to have a whole offline, you know, analysis because it's not just your karma. It's also like an anxious temperament. Okay. So I need to lay down on a couch right now. <laughs> you can pay and me talk to someone. Yes. later. Okay. Yeah. No way. I accept you. I'm not paying you that much money. <laughs> okay. Do you view, last question, do you view your job and Andrea's job as generally the same thing or as independent of each other? Does Andrea pitch to sponsors for the podcast or vice versa. So I'll answer the sponsor question first. I am part of a network called Acast. I signed on with them from the very beginning because I wanted good analytics and data, which I get from them, and also because I did not want to be doing sales. And I I have the opportunity, even with Acast, I could find my own sponsors, and there have been people who have approached me and vice versa. And it is so complicated. It's like a whole arm of business that I just knew I didn't want to do and I didn't want to devote time to. So I do not pitch sponsors as of 
now it's sort of taken care of for me. They present sponsors to me. I can say yes or no. I say no more often than they would like. And it just works, works well for me. It's really important that you say no. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. because it means when you say yes, that there is some actual affinity towards the product. Yeah. And I think that, that that's an important thing. Anytime you're using your persona and your skill set to advocate for something, it's important that there's some relationship. Yes. Yeah. Right. I, this is a really big topic. I think we can be relatively brief, though. So I think what comes up is kind of like, are you and I is Jason Crandall or Jason Crandall Yoga Method and Andrea Ferretti or Yoga Land? Like, are we distinct and separate businesses or are we part of more or less the same business providing different experiences and different personalities? And I think the latter, mm-hmm. like I've thought the latter for a long time that you are you and I am I, but where we have always come together is our perspective on practicing and teaching yoga. And we have complementary skill sets and complementary personalities, right? So I think that I am more immediate and comfortable in front of people and talking and moving and interacting with a group. And I'm also more comfortable. I actually think I'm transparent with my personality but I'm more comfortable teaching subject matter. And where I see you is you've always been, as an editor, you've always been a great content editor and happy behind the scenes. And I feel like podcasting is this perfect medium where you're kind of behind the scenes, but also you have a more direct engagement than if you're just a content editor for a magazine. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. But I feel like... I mean, obviously, we are we are a family, and the revenue that comes in is it goes towards being a family. But I feel like operationally, I think of you as a yoga teacher too. Hmm. I feel like we're teaching and sharing yoga. We're just doing it through our own medium. Medium, but I'll, I'll say sort of final thing I'll say, which is, you know, there's a lot of people that. And not so much when I'm here, but there's a lot of times when I'm teaching a workshop or a training in another city and years and years and years and years ago, people would say, oh, I'm here because I read your stuff in Yoga Journal. Then for a long period of time and still now they'll say, oh, I, you know, I take your classes on Yoga Glow or Glow. They still say that as much, but in that same breath, they say, I love your wife tell her to keep doing the podcast. So I think that that's a place where you and I have a very unified business Yeah, and we're just kind of different access points. Yeah. It's worked out well. Like I said, I mean, we have just figured it out as we've gone along. I think we do have very different skill sets and we do have very different jobs for the way that we operate. And it just has worked out so far. So I think we feel very fortunate. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> that was going to be very neurotic, but yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so we'll, we'll just stop there then. Okay. Yes. Thanks, everyone. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thanks so much for listening. I'll put show notes at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 159. I hope you feel inspired to go out and do your thing. Create content that you love, that you want to create, and you'll find your people. Okay. And until next week, enjoy your practice. <laughs>